So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you how it, it, it does a work in us that we don't even comprehend. It renews our mind. It, it sets our feet on a rock so that we're not moved. It establishes us in you and it helps us to have the mind of Christ. So this morning, Lord, as we read this short passage, as we talk about it, Lord, plant it in our hearts. Help us to even memorize this passage so that we could keep it with us and let it speak to us throughout our days. Thank you for the word, Lord. Uh, those who have come with the burdens on their heart, I pray right now you'd help them just to let them go, to let you take them so their hearts and minds could be just focused on, on what you're saying to them this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So uh, our passage is, is from some of the verses we went over last week, but we're just going to hone in on a couple of verses because they're so important to us and so, so meaningful, so rich. And we're in Galatians 2, and I'm going to be reading the end of 19 and verse 20, and I think it's going to be on the overhead. Do we have that for the overhead? Yeah. So in honor of God's word, would you stand one more time with me? And let's, we don't, you, I usually read this to you, but it's such a short passage. I'd like us all to read it together this morning. So Galatians 2, 19, B and 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And that life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you, Lord. So happy Father's Day to all of you that are fathers that are here and to those who are online. Uh, you know, fatherhood is so important. Godly fathers are the bulwark against the rising tide of the disintegration of the family. The message today is especially applicable to us fathers. Our prisons are full of men who grew up without fathers. One organization that uh, gave out Mother's Day and Father's Day cards to inmates found prisoners, most prisoners wanted a Mother's Day card, but almost none asked for a Father's Day card. That's quite telling. It's the evidence that fatherless homes are a great detriment to our society. Marriage requires a death to ourself and commitment to serve one another in love. And that's a gift of grace that only comes from being in Christ. You know, couples can stay together out of codependency or because they share some mutual desire or, or they have a need met in each other but only Christians can die to themselves and serve one another with godly love. And that's what our culture is rapidly losing in our day. Fathers who sacrificially love their wives like Christ loved the church. And with that loss, we find our youth are even more self-centered, unmotivated than the previous generations. The number of homeless youths in our society today is a tragedy and it's skyrocketing. Jesus is the only answer to our cultural decline. 
what we are slow to realize is that true joy is found in setting aside our own desires and serving others with the love of Christ. As Francis of Assisi said, it is in giving that we receive. It's in pardoning that we are pardoned. And of course, he took that right out of Jesus' teaching. While the message today is for everyone who hears it, men, we are the ones who most need to live this out every day as examples in our homes. So please take it to heart and consider how living it will make your life fuller and richer as you surrender your will to Jesus. Congregation, um, we've just read that passage and I, I want to encourage you to plan it in your heart and in your mind by memorizing it. We, like I said, we covered this verse in the context of Paul's message to the churches of Galatia last week, but today I just feel, I felt really led to just focus on these two verses and the transformational power of what Paul was declaring in this passage. From sharing with many believers in Christ, I've concluded, concluded that most of us, and I'm including myself, feel like we're waiting for God to show us some special purpose, something that, something that he has for us. And we wait for some big revelation of how we can lead people to Jesus or, or save those who are in bondage to addictions or deliver people from some other enslaving sin. And we want God to use us for his glory. And that desire, it comes from the Holy Spirit in gratitude for our salvation. But I think in that good desire, we can sometimes put the wrong thing first. And in these words from the Apostle Paul, we have the right order and God's desire for our lives. After all, our desire is ultimately to please God. Amen? And then his desires should take priority over our own desires. He wants you to join in his death so that you can join in his life. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul wrote. Can you identify with that statement? Can you say, I have been crucified with Christ? What does it mean? And how can we know if we truly have been crucified with Christ? Our body was not nailed to the cross with Jesus, but what Paul's referring to as crucified with Christ is his life before he knew Jesus. That's what went on the cross. That's all that he once took pride in, his genealogy going back all the way to Benjamin, his training under Gamaliel, one of the reading, leading rabbis of his time, his fervor for Judaism and to keep it pure, his advancement and the respect he was gaining from his culture and his obedience to all the details of the laws of Moses, as well as his sinful nature. All of that is crucified with Jesus. Everything that he once valued, he realized was misguided zeal. That person he once was, he let die with Jesus on the cross. He recognized it was all sin. In fact, it was rebellion against the very God he thought he was serving. He wanted nothing to do with it ever again. Just as the dead body of Jesus could no longer see the world, so Paul wanted to see nothing in this world 
He wanted his heart and soul and his vision only upon Jesus and the sacrifice he made to set him free from his misplaced zeal that he'd lived in ignorance. He no longer cared about his reputation for his new message was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. In the Corinthian culture that honored making a name for yourself, he was determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. What happened to his pride and his reputation? It was crucified with Jesus. What happened to his trust in the wisdom of his former teacher? It was crucified with Jesus. I am crucified with Christ. And while we long to do something to glorify God and, and be of service to the kingdom of God, a godly desire, we have to realize that it starts by putting our own reputation and our own ego, our desires that led us astray on the cross with Jesus. Our desire to do some great thing for, for God can really have a selfish motivation of wanting others' respect, wanting their honor. We must distinguish between the old life that goes on the cross and the new. And one way to do so is to ask yourself if God is getting all the glory. To be seen and recognized for an act of service is a sure sign that it was done in the old nature that should be on the cross with Christ. The more we take spiritual pride in our actions, are our position, the more certain we can be that we are acting in a nature that should be crucified. What is the cruciform life? It's as Jesus declared when he was in Gethsemane, not my will but yours be done. That's the continual response of those who are living the crucified life. Paul demonstrated it when he stood against Peter and Barnabas in, in a previous passage that we were looking at in Galatians, all the Jews from Jerusalem, Peter and Barnabas all on one side and only him on the other. And he knew he would be and had been falsely accused of sin, just like his savior. He knew his reputation was gonna be dragged through the mud, but he was crucified to the world. The only thing he would boast in is the cross of Christ that ended his confidence in his flesh. If we're gonna live the crucified life, we have to do the same. The gospel will bring rejection. The world must be crucified to us. A dear brother was struggling, a friend of mine, this is several years back, with shingles, and he, he, was, he was fighting his addiction to the painkillers. And he asked me for a word from the Lord. He wanted me to hear from God for him. And I don't normally do that because I know you can hear from God, that each of us has a direct line through, through Jesus to the Father and, and we can communicate with him ourselves. We can open the word for ourselves and find God's will. I am not your priest. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is our priest. He's our great high priest. But it surprised me that, that when I prayed for him, God did speak to my heart for him, and the word was a tough word. It was embrace the suffering. And it was confirmed to me a, sh a short time later in a sermon that I heard. 
how can you do that unless we are crucified to the world? Unless you're crucified with Jesus who bore the reproach of the world against God. Now, I'm not saying that we seek out pain or suffering, but when it comes, the crucified life will embrace it as a gift from God. For all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. And that's what Paul did with his eye affliction. You know, this, this, he wrote that he prayed three times that God would take away this affliction that he had in his eyes. But when God told him it was to keep him humble and that his grace was sufficient for him, Paul no longer prayed for that deliverance. He embraced it as a gift from God. There's suffering that comes from attachment to this world and our unmet expectations in life. We will all suffer some way, but why would we choose to suffer for temporary things? The infant invitation of Jesus is to place our attachments to this fallen world on the cross with him. He can replace it with joys that are richer and fuller. And when suffering for Christ comes, it will reap eternal rewards in heaven. If we have a clear picture of the difference, then the choice will become obvious. Are you crucified with Christ? It isn't a popular message, but it's a message that resonates in the heart of the followers of Jesus. It isn't some morbid, gloomy message, but in an adventure of deeper joys than the world can ever know. It's life everlasting and life abundant. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The old is gone and the new has come. Now this I that Paul is referring to is his old life I mentioned earlier. And when it's crucified with Christ, it no longer enslaves us with its desires. Now that doesn't mean you won't have to wrestle against it. For Paul also declared the flesh fights against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So that there's this struggle there in your life. But the thing that's different in the real you, the new you, does not want to yield to that old life any longer. Before you came to Christ, it was, when can I do it again? After you came to Christ, it's, ah, oh, I did it again. You know, it's that conviction. And that conviction says the Holy Spirit is living in you. Hallelujah. It's saying you can change. By the power of Christ in you, you can be different. And Christ in you has the power to stop that old nature I like to call the zombie from taking control again. Because he's dead. The old you is dead. And he likes to climb out of his coffin and say, come on back. Let me, let me just show you what to do. Remember the fun we had together? And you just look at him and say, Jesus rebuke you. You died, go back in your coffin, amen? Hallelujah. Christ lives in me. The popular culture today claims that that's true for everyone. Wow, that is ignoring reality, isn't it? I mean, just look at the world around us. If I believed that that was true, that Christ was in everyone, I would have to say Christ is sometimes a pedophile or a murderer or a thief or a rapist. 
the very thought is blasphemous and absurd. Christ wants to live in every person, but the world wants the power and the respect due him for themselves without dying to themselves. They want Christ in them that enhances self. They want to boast in who they are instead of dying to who they are. This passage is the exact opposite idea. Jesus isn't who you want him to be. He's an historical figure who grew up in a Jewish culture fulfilling Jewish prophecies of saving mankind from sin and making us right with God through his sacrificial death. Any other interpretation of Jesus separates us from the reality of the man from Galilee in his Jewish culture. Christ lives in me is the reality for the person who has been crucified with Christ. We know our sins are forgiven. We know that there's nothing we can do to make God love us more. We're accepted in the beloved. We are adopted into the family of God. The message translation, which is a little beyond a translation, it's kind of like a translation with commentary woven in, puts it this way. Verse 20, Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I've been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It's no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have, a, have your good opinion. And I'm no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The grace proclaimed in this letter to the Galatians is a gift from God to all who will receive his invitation to die with Jesus on the cross to our sinful lives. But then also to let our new life be Christ in us, the hope of glory. That new life is marked by the fruits of the Holy Spirit that we're going to read about in when we get to Galatians chapter 5. Someone recently asked me, how can we know that Christ is in us? And the fruit is the evidence of the type of tree. Jesus said, by their fruits you will know them. Figs bear, fig trees bear figs. You can know, you can be a kind and gentle most of the time. Those are two fruits of the Spirit. But a consistent life of joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control is only the result of Christ in you. When you do not demonstrate these fruits, it's not because Christ has left you, but rather that you've yielded to that old zombie. He's come out and invited you and you said, okay, let's try it again. Maybe this time it won't be as bad as last time. And you know what? It ends up worse because the conviction gets deeper and deeper because you belong to him. You belong to Christ. And that's, that's our warning sign that he or she needs to be put back in the casket and Christ back on the throne of our hearts. As I was preparing this, uh, another of Oswald Chambers' devotions, it's amazing how I'm, as I'm reading it and I'm working on a sermon, they just often seem to line up. What do we do when we find ourselves flustered by our old nature? 
he writes, Watch how Jesus used the word come. At the most unexpected moments, there is the whisper of the Lord, come unto me. And you are drawn immediately. Personal contact with Jesus alters everything. Be stupid enough in the world's eyes to come and commit yourself to whatever he says to you. The attitude of coming is that we will resolutely let go of everything and deliberately commit all to him. And he says, I will give you rest. I will stay you. Not, I will put you in bed and hold your hand and sing you to sleep, but I will get you out of bed and out of the languor and out of the exhaustion, out of the state of being half dead while you are alive. I will imbue you with the spirit of life and you will be stayed by the perfection of vital activity. That's Christ living in us. And that life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Though I live in this carnal body that's going to perish, I am animated by faith in the Son of God. He is the reason I wake up every day. He's the first thought on my mind. When I rise, I commune commune with him throughout the day. And each situation I face, trusting he is with me and has a purpose in all the details of my life. I believe he's fashioned me in my mother's womb and planned each day of my life before they came to be. Our lives are marked by our crucifixion with Christ, but they are also marked by our resurrection in him. Hallelujah. In fact, the power of resurrection empowers our bodies and our minds to serve him each day. And the more we live in communion with him and his word, the more our desires align with his desires. Our choices become his choices. We desire what he desires. And when we recognize that our desires are different from those that we crucified with Christ, we're encouraged that Christ is truly living in us. I live by faith in the Son of God. I believe what he taught. He taught that he is the one and only Son of God who is the Word made flesh. He taught that life, that I'm sorry, that he was ushering in a new covenant in his blood, a covenant based on what he would do for me, not my ability to be good enough for God. He taught that he was ushering in a new, a new kingdom with himself as king of all who would receive him. And he taught that he's coming again to receive those who've placed their faith in him and will reward us for our labors. He will judge the world in righteousness. We live in faith that his words are true. We all live by faith in something. For many, it's faith in self. For other, it's faith in science or in a political party or philosophy of man. For some, it's another religion or teaching. But I live by faith in the Son of God. And here's why I think that is That faith is far superior faith than all others because he loved me and gave himself for me. 
Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8 say that for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why, why do we place our lives in his hands? Why should we trust him and place our faith in him as, as compared to all the other things we might trust in or put our faith in? Because while we were still rebelling against him, while we were shaking our fist in his face, he died for us to make us his own. And if he would die for us, is there any good thing he would withhold from us? But to be honest, I also place my faith in him because he's proven himself to me over and over and over again. Faith is the main reason, but my faith is bolstered by the historical evidence of prophecy, by the ancient manuscripts, by the words that he spoke, and the life he lived. There is no one like Jesus. There has never been anyone who showed the power he demonstrated. There, there has never been anyone who demonstrated the compassion that he showed, who forgives people who are nailing them to the cross. Only Jesus and those in whom he lives. I see him in the details of my days, and I see him in the transformed lives of those who come to know him. I see him in his faithfulness to this little church and the outreach that he's done through this church. We all witness him in the beauty of the creation around us. The life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Could we ask for a more glorious Savior? He will judge the wicked and perfect those who are in him, and his promises are sure. None of them will fail. I know it's asking a lot. In fact, it's asking for your all, but will you be crucified with Christ? Will you allow Christ to live in you for as long as you live? Will you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you?